Amen. Well, good morning, church. We are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you turn there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I entitled the message, The Rapture. <laughs> I heard something from up above there. A Amen. <laughs> I'm excited about this message. I Actually, I have so much to say, I think I'm going to blow up. So I'm, I might have to make this a two-parter because we don't want to just rush through this. There's, there's a lot to look at. And, and I want to show you today why the church is not going through the tribulation. Now, we all know people who believe that the church is going to go through the part of the tribulation or all of the tribulation or three-quarter of the tribulation. And there's some different views now, but um, I'm going to show you through Scripture why the church is not appointed to wrath, why the church is not going through the tribulation, because it's our blessed hope. Paul believed that Jesus could come back at any moment. The disciples believed that Jesus could come back at any moment. And if you think the church is going through the tribulation, then you don't believe that. It's the doctrine of the imminent return of Jesus Christ, which means there is nothing that needs to take place for the Lord's return. It's all systems go. He could come at any moment. But if you feel like the church has got to go through the tribulation or part of the tribulation, then you don't have that blessed hope. You're not looking for the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. You're looking for the appearing of the Antichrist. I'm not looking for the Antichrist. I think the Antichrist is alive right now. I think we're right down to the wire. I think it's all going to go down in our generation. I believe that. No man knows the day or the hour, but we're knows, we know the times and the seasons. And if you look around, this is the beginning of sorrows. The world is just falling apart. But that means Jesus is coming which we should get excited about that. Are you looking forward to the rapture? I'll tell you what, I'm so looking forward to it because when I get out of bed, man, everything's creaking and popping and I'm just like, Lord, come Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Now you young people, you're not as excited as I am. But I'm ready. The Lord could come at any time and there's nothing that stops him from coming. And so we, be, we should be living with that hope. So today, we are going to look at the last part of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, starting at verse 13 through 18, which deals with this amazing thing that we're waiting for to happen in our lives. Verse 13 says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Now, Paul does what Jesus does, is when he referenced those believers that have died, he, he references them as being asleep. Because when someone's dead, they, they look like they're asleep. And sometimes people are asleep, and you're like, are they dead? You know, you shake. So he just says it like that. Matter of fact, when Lazarus died, you guys remember that story? When Lazarus died, someone came to say, you know, Lord, come to Lazarus, come to Lazarus. He's not doing good. And, and, uh, and you know, we all know that he died and Jesus told the disciples, the disciples were like, well, we need to go see him really quick. And he says, don't worry about it. He's asleep. And they go, oh, well, that's good. If he's asleep, then he's resting. He'll, he'll get better. And Jesus had to go, no, he's dead. And he allowed himself not to be there so he could come and resurrect him from the grave. 
And that same resurrection power that Jesus had when he rose three days later, that same resurrection power that lifted Lazarus out of the grave is the same resurrection power that's going to bring you up. Whether you are dead in Christ or you are alive when he comes, we will be caught up in the clouds. I'm getting ahead of myself. I didn't even read it yet. But he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Test that you, lest that, your sorrow, that you sorrow like others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep, who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for these promises, Lord. We are awaiting your glorious appearance, our blessed hope for you to come at any moment, Lord. Help us to be ready when you come. Help us to be watching and waiting, preparing. Lord, pour out your spirit on us right now that we would receive this message with all readiness and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Wow. What an exciting thing. It would be to have the Lord come today and find us in church. I would hate the Lord to come at a time where he finds us doing something that's not in his will. And so he tells us to watch and prepare. To don't focus on the day. There's a lot of people focusing on the day. And over the generations, we've had people name days, you know, the Lord's coming on this day. Well, the Bible says no one knows the day or the hour, not the Son, not the angels, only the Father. I believe that. So if somebody says, you know, hey, look, Jesus is coming Friday. Well, you just blew it for us. He can't come Friday now. No man knows the day or the hour, but we know the times and the seasons. And the stuff that we're seeing right now is what Jesus referred to as the beginning of sorrows. Worldwide chaos, worldwide uh, financial struggles, recessions, cost of living going up worldwide, pandemic worldwide. It's all falling into place. And along with that, our blessed hope, Jesus is coming. He told us these things were happening and so we can get all doom and gloom or we can get soon and zoom and be watching the sky knowing that he's coming for his bride. How cool would that be not to die physically but just be transformed in the twinkling of an eye? Now, our blessed hope, we know that if we die, the Bible tells us absent from the body, present with the Lord. If you're in Christ Jesus, your soul, your spirit goes to heaven, but your body stays here in the grave. But one day, as we just read, that will all change. In the moment, in a twinkling of an eye, the sound of the trump, the trump of God, 
the dead in Christ will rise and we who are alive and remain will be caught up with them. What's that tell you? When Jesus comes back for his bride, he's bringing back those from the church who died in faith, who are with him right now. He will come with them. Their bodies will come up out of the grave. Won't that be freaky? And will be joined together, incorruptible, immortal, and then we that are alive and remain will be caught up in the clouds. That's going to freak some people out. Can you imagine the trumpet sounds and all the bodies that are going to rise up out of Hanalei Bay where the ashes were poured over the years while the surfers are out there surfing the unbelievers and they're just like, what was that? Or those that would be burying a loved one right at the moment that the trumpet sounds and, and as soon as they lower that casket down into the hole, all of a sudden, boom, Uncle Fred just comes flying out. That's our blessed hope. We don't know the day or the hour, but we shouldn't be focusing on the day. We should be focusing I'm preparing ourselves for when that day comes. What does that mean? Present yourself holy. Turn from sin. God's broken the power of sin in your life. He's given you an opportunity to live a holy life. He says, be holy because I'm holy. Be pure because I'm pure. He wants to purify his bride. Present her blameless before the Father. Do you have the blood of Jesus covering you right now? If you don't have Jesus, you're not going up. What's the prerequisite to go up? You've got to be in the faith. You've got to be born again. There's a lot of people that are playing church that are not really born again. And they'll be left behind. You don't want to be left behind. Jesus is coming, and he's coming soon. And you need to prepare yourself. The Bible tells us that when he comes for his bride that there will be those that will be ashamed. What does that mean? It means as you look through the passages, the scriptures, as you look through church history, you have those that are on fire for Jesus, and then you have those that are lukewarm. Those who are born again, they're saved, but they're not really living for God. They're saved, they're going to go up. They're saved, but they're backslidden, they're doing something else that they shouldn't be doing. So when the Lord comes, let's say he comes right now, you and I will be excited because why? He found us in church. But there's going to be some that he's going to find doing things they shouldn't be doing. They're born again. They're going up. But you and I are going up, looking up like this, and they're going up looking down because they're ashamed. They're saved. So the real question is, is, how do you want to go up? Psyching or ashamed? This is our blessed hope. Titus 2.13 tells us that we are looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our hope. This is what the, all through the New Testament, they talk about this. 
Paul was looking for the return of Jesus. John was looking for the return. Peter was looking for the return. James and the disciples, they were looking for the glorious appearing. 1 Thessalonians was written to the church of Thessalonica to, to talk about the rapture. It's all about the rapture. It's all about the Lord coming for his church. 2 Thessalonians is all about the second coming. And Paul had to write a second letter because a false letter was, was circulated after Paul had left, after they had received 1 Thessalonians, telling them that they missed the rapture. And they thought they were in the tribulation because Nero is a psycho. He's like a total picture of the Antichrist killing Christians. And, and they thought, and Paul had to write a second letter and say, calm down, you didn't miss it. This is our blessed hope. If you're a true believer, you're going up when he comes. If you're alive when he comes, you're going up. It's the doctrine of his imminent return. Now, there are those people who believe that we're going through the tribulation. They're good Christians. We love them. They're just misled. You've got to read your scriptures. There are those that believe we'll go all the way through it. Some will go partially through it. You've got to really study the word of God because when they tell you their reasons, it just doesn't match. It doesn't line up. You know, a uh, historic Roman historian wrote back in Paul's day that the driving force of the church in that day was the return of Jesus Christ for his bride. Now that should affect you because this guy Gibbons, famous historian, was an unbeliever. And he recognized from the outside of the church the driving force was the church looking for the imminent return of Jesus Christ. That's our blessed hope. 1 Thessalonians, verse 10 tells us, and that we are to wait for his son from heaven, who was raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We're not appointed to wrath. He's delivered us from the wrath to come. Now, some people like to say, oh, well, the wrath there spoken of talks about hell. No, it doesn't. The issue of hell was settled at the cross when you gave your life to Jesus Christ. He's not talking about hell. He's talking to believers right now, and he's talking about the judgment that God is going to pour out on a Christ-rejecting world once his church is out. God said, love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. He didn't say beat up the bride before the honeymoon. I mean, can you imagine that? Why is it that over 2,000 years, the generation of the church has escaped the wrath only for him to pour out the wrath on the last generation? It doesn't make any sense. Then why would Ephesians say, love your wife like Christ loved the church? If you have a mid-trib or a post-trib view, I feel sorry for your wife. <laughs> we are waiting for the appearance of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 For what is our hope, our joy, or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. This is something said by the Apostle Paul, Pastor Paul. This is something that every pastor and leader and missionary person wants to say to the church at large is that you guys are my hope and my joy that I will see you when I'm caught up I'll see you too, caught up. That's my hope and joy, that I, when I get to heaven, I see you in heaven. And if the Lord comes while I'm alive, that I see you all come up to the clouds with me. 
That's my hope and joy. That's my crown of rejoicing, for you are our glory and joy. 1 Thessalonians 3.13 says this, So that he, Jesus, may establish your hearts blameless and in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. So that, that could have two great meanings. We know that when he comes back the second time, we're all going to be riding with him. But also, as we read in uh, chapter 4, that when he comes, he brings all those who died in faith in the church, all those church members, all the bride that have already gone to heaven, that he will bring them back with him as he catches up in the cloud. And we're going to meet our old loved ones in the air. How cool is that? Anybody lost a loved one? A family member, a father, a, a, a mom, a, a son, or a daughter, or a dad. They're going to be coming with Jesus in the clouds. And their bodies are going to be pulled up out of the graves, and they're going to be reconnected. Your body will be transformed, and we will meet our loved ones. I'm looking forward to that. I got some people I can't wait to see. And they probably can't wait to see me. Or you. To know that we made it. Amen? And then we read in chapter 4 about this whole thing that takes place. But then look at chapter 5. Look at verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, we're not appointed to the judgment of God on this world. I hope you know that. God loves you. And so in Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians, he says there in verse 13, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those which have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who are asleep or dead in Jesus. That's great stuff right there. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant. Those that have died in the faith are with the Lord. Their bodies are just sleeping. Now, let me just straighten out. There's no such thing as soul sleep. Some, some try to teach that, that you, know, that you die, you just kind of stay in the grave, and you're just sleeping, taking a nap, waiting for the resurrection, waiting for the rapture. That's, that's not true. The Bible tells us as soon as you die, absent from the body, present with the Lord, your soul, your spirit is gone to be with the Lord. But that body will be joined to. Job even said it in his writing Job said, in my flesh I will see the Lord. After worms have destroyed this body, in my flesh. So the thing is, flesh and bone will be raised up and joined to the body of those that are already with Jesus. And it will be a new body that's spirit-driven, not carbon-driven. Right now we're carbon-driven. We're driven by blood. See, when... Adam and Eve were in the garden, they were clothed in light, but when they sinned, they saw their nakedness. What happened? They were no longer clothed with light, they're clothed now with flesh and blood. Jesus said flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, but when Jesus rose from the dead on the evening of the resurrection, and he went and he saw the disciples, they freaked out, thought he was a spirit, or a ghost, and he says, touch me, does a spirit have flesh and bone? Notice he didn't say flesh and blood. Flesh and bone can inherit the kingdom of God, but flesh and blood cannot. So when we get to heaven, we'll be spirit-driven. I like that. 
That's good stuff. I'm looking forward to that. And then he says there in verse 15, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. I like that. Who's coming for us? Jesus. Not an angel. Not Uncle Fred. Jesus. God. Creator of the heavens and earth. Is coming for you. Why? You're his bride. He adores you. He loves you. And he's coming. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. The voice of an archangel with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Do you like the way that Paul's talking here? He was speaking this to the Thessalonians with the anticipation that the Lord could come today. He's like, we, we, we. I don't know, that's pretty cool. So what's the purpose of all this? Why does the rapture need to take place? Because the rapture has to happen because God does not want his bride beat up in the judgment of Almighty God. All through the scriptures, you see God has to get his people out before that judgment comes down. We saw it with uh, Genesis. Enoch had to be removed. He's a type of the church. Noah and his family were a type of Israel preserved through the trial. The tribulation is a time for Israel where God's going to deal with them once and for all and give them that last chance. But Enoch had to be removed. Noah had to be preserved, and then the judgment came down. You remember Lot. Before Sodom and Gomorrah could be destroyed, the angels say, we can't do nothing until you're out. God always makes sure his people are out. That's the purpose of the rapture, is to get us out of here to remove his bride before the judgment on the earth. You don't want to be here when he judges the earth. I, you know, I have good friends, people I love, that think we're in the tribulation right now. I'm like, read your Bible. You're not in it. I mean, I love them. I don't, I don't say it sarcastically, but I mean, maybe there's a little edge to what I'm saying. But, I, you know, it's like, dude, read your Bible. If you study the revelation carefully, the judgment that's poured out, it ain't no cakewalk. The first seven seals, that first judgment, a quarter of the population is wiped out. The second trumpet judgments, uh, another third, over half of the the world's population is gone. And it's worldwide. It affects people worldwide. I'm, I was trying to tell a couple of my friends who thought we were in tribulation. I said, you guys aren't in tribulation. You're still going out to dinner. You guys tell me about your vacation plans. You got a nice truck. You got a big house. You got a boat. What are you talking about? You're not in tribulation. When everybody in the world's working all day for a loaf of bread, Tribulation. Because that's how it starts. We're not in it yet. And God's got to get us out. It's so important. 
Now let me talk to you about the trump of God. Pretty important there. Because Corinthians tells us that it's the last trump. It's the trumpet of God. So uh, many people who believe that the church is going through part of the tribulation or all of the tribulation, they account it to uh, the mid-trib view. People say when the last trumpet's blown on the trumpet judgments, that's when we go up. Or when the uh, two witnesses are killed in chapter 11 and then they're caught up after three days of laying dead uh, for everybody to rejoice over, and then God raises them, breathes life into them, and they stand up, freak out the whole world. Because why? Because they tormented the world for three and a half years. That when they go up, that's when we go up. And then they say it's, um, it's the others that believe we're going through the whole thing say because at the end of the tribulation, the trumpet's blown, and all the people are gathered from all four corners of the earth. The problem with that theory is those are trumpets blown by angels. This is the trump of God. Read your Bible careful. It's the trump of God. It's the last trump of God. So if it's the last trump of God, what was the first trump of God? Well, the Scriptures tells us. In the book of Numbers, I think it's chapter 10, God tells Moses to make two trumpets. They're made out of silver. Silver is the metal of redemption. He's the fashion two trumpets. The first one is to be blown to alert the people to gather together to receive instructions. The second one is to be blown to gather the people together to tell them we're moving out, wars to follow. So the first trump of God was blown in Exodus where Moses brings the people up to Mount Sinai and the Lord tells Moses, go and prepare the people. They're going to meet me. And so he tells them to get ready. They have three days of preparation. And then on that day, he brings the people to the base of the mountain. And, and the earth is quaking and lightning and thunder and smoke. And God speaks to the people and his voice is an exceedingly loud trumpet. First trump. And remember, it freaked them out so much. They said, Moses, we don't want to talk to God anymore. You talk to God. Tell us what he says. We'll do it. You know, we're afraid. That was the first trumpet. What was that first trumpet for? To gather the people in to receive information. That's what God wanted to tell them. What's this trumpet for? To gather the people together to say, we're moving out, wrath to follow. The trump of God. Whew. That's good stuff, isn't it? In... 1 Thessalonians 5.9, it says, for, this is, this is, you got to highlight this one. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is, when is, when is the rapture going to take place? Well, no man knows the day or the hour. Right? We don't know the day or the hour. And I say that with love because if you're here today and you have a post-tribulation view or a mid-tribulation view, you think you know the day or the hour. Why? Because you know in the middle of the tribulation, what is it, 1260 days or it's 42 months or three and a half years, that in the middle, the Antichrist is going to sit down 
in the temple and proclaim himself God and say, worship me or die. If you have a mid-trib view, when you see that happen, you go, Jesus is coming today. If you have a post-tribulation view, you see that happen, you go, oh, Jesus will be here in three and a half years to the day. But God says nobody knows the day or the hour. Not the son, not angels, but only my father. That's an incredible statement. You know, you know why that's incredible? Is because we get introduced to the rapture from Jesus himself in John 14. Turn to John 14. See, Jesus doesn't want you to focus on the day that he's coming, but he wants you to focus on being prepared for that day. Be prepared for the wedding that's coming by purifying yourself and being holy, turning away from sin. Jesus introduces us to the rapture here in John 14 where he says, let not, verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. That's exciting to me. Remember, Jesus told his disciples that he had to leave because he needed to send someone. Who was that? His spirit. It would be more beneficial that it, rather than Jesus just being visible on the earth in the flesh that he, he was in to die for our sins, fully God, fully man, it would be more profitable for him to go away that he could send the spirit that Jesus could dwell in all that believe. We, that we would all have access at any time. And so he gives them the promise that I must go so that the Holy Spirit can come. And then he says to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. And where I am, I will bring you to me. He doesn't say I'm going to come to where you are, but I'm going to bring you where I am. I'm going to snatch you off this earth. And catch you into the clouds and take you to heaven because I prepared a place. Because my father's house has many mansions. That means we have to be raptured out and brought to heaven. Now, the problem with that, if you have a mid-trib or a post-view, is that you're not looking for that. See, those that believe that we're going through the tribulation believe that the rapture takes place at the end of the tribulation. Jesus comes down into the clouds, calls his church up, and then they just return like a yo-yo right back to the planet Earth to set up the kingdom. The problem with that is the church isn't in heaven before we come back riding on white horses with them. That means if you have that post-tribulation view and you think the rapture is just getting caught into the clouds to return again to set up the kingdom, then you're, you're placing the church 
on earth, caught up in the clouds to Jesus back on earth, then you've cut out heaven altogether like Jesus just said in chapter 14. So if you believe that the church is going through the tribulation and the rapture is just to go to the clouds to meet him to come right back, you got to cut John 14 out of your Bible. you got to cut Revelation 19 out of your Bible because Revelation 19 shows us in heaven rejoicing after he's finished the judgments and, and we're all singing hallelujah, praise the Lord, and he says the church is arrayed in fine linen and then we all get on our horses and ride from heaven to the earth with them. All right, Seth was excited about that. Nobody else was. Okay. I know some of you are afraid of horses. You'll be all right. You'll be riding with no hands. The reason that um, this is so important, what he says in John 14, is that you really need to understand the culture that he was speaking to. It's beautiful. Jesus had a way of talking to people in a way that they would understand what he was saying because of their culture. So let's say if he's talking to farmers, he would talk about the seed being the word of God. Sowing the seed, the harvest, uh, the separating of the, the weeds from the, from the wheat that they could understand. We talked to fishermen. He said, listen, fishermen, I'm going to make you fishers of men. You're going to cast your nets out with the gospel. You catch them, I clean them. When Jesus spoke John 14... Let not your hearts be troubled. In my Father's house there's many mansions. If it was not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and where I am, I will bring you unto myself. When he told them that, they immediately knew he was talking about a wedding. They immediately knew. When he talked to them about no man knows the day or the hour, not the son nor the angels or the father, they, they immediately identified that with wedding. Why? Because it was the Galilean culture. Jesus was a Galilean. His disciples were Galileans. His main ministry was in Galilee. Most of the time, most of his ministry was in Galilee. He's talking to a Galilean culture group, which was different from any other culture in Israel. How so? When it came to marriage. Did you know all throughout Israel, when someone would get married, what they do, they would do the, t the time of engagement, the time of betrothal, where they would come to the main gate and both families would come up and all the town would come up because they had to have witnesses and, and the families would agree that these two should be married and, and then when the uh, bridegroom and the bride agree, this is awesome, you know, we're, we're going to get married. There was like this time period of about nine months to a year where the bridegroom would go prepare a place his bride and he would drink a cup of wine and he would give it to her and she would drink a cup of wine and then he would say I will not drink from this cup until I'm with you again sound familiar and he would go to prepare a place and then when the time was right and everything was done they would have the wedding but here's how the Galilean wedding was different from the rest of Israel in Israel there would be that engagement period the bride had no choice. This is who she was marrying. It was agreed by the parents. 
and then he would go prepare a place, and it would take up to about a year, and then when he got it all done, and everything was ready, and the food was ready for the feast, and the wine was ready for the feast, and everything was in position, then they would announce to everybody the day of the wedding so everybody could be there. That wasn't the case in Galilee. In Galilee, what would happen was that at the gate, when the engagement would take place, and both families would agree, then the bridegroom would take a cup and pour wine in it, and he would drink from it, and then he would hand it to the bride. And at that point, only in a Galilean wedding was the bride allowed to say no and hand the cup back saying, I don't want what you're offering me. Only in a Galilean wedding. Does it sound like the church? God's not going to force his love on you. He's offering you to drink from the cup, but are you pushing that cup away saying, I don't want what you have to offer me? But if she took that cup and then drank from it, it's like, I want what you're offering me. And he would then say, I'm not going to drink from this cup until I'm with you again. And then he would go to prepare a place for her, and everybody had to get ready. And the girls had to get ready. They had to make the dresses. The bride had to make her dresses. The bridesmaids had to have their dresses ready. They needed to be prepared. In fact, when it was coming up to that time, they didn't know the time, the day, or the hour, because in a Galilean wedding, no one knew the day or the hour except the father. So they would get everything ready, and the son would say, Dad, I'm ready. I got the food. I got the wine. I got everything's in place. The, the, the house is prepared for her. You know, and, 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 and the father would say, calm down. I'll tell you when. It's not now. And then she had to get ready, and, and, and there was even writings, reports that in those days that the, the brides would sleep in her wedding garment, and her bridesmaid would sleep in that wedding gar their wedding garments, and they would all be sleeping together waiting for the bridegroom because you had to be ready. Are you ready for the bridegroom? Are you ready for him? You ready for Jesus? And so then all of a sudden the father one night will wake up, and he'll say to the son, wake up. Go get your bride. And he would jump up with excitement, grab his bride's grooms, and they would go out in the street and they would blow a trumpet. And everybody in the village knew it's going down. And the bride and her bridesmaid would jump up to be ready. And they would be standing outside, waiting outside of their house. And the whole entourage would be coming down to their house, the trumpet blowing. And then they would bring like this litter, this stretcher. And it had like a chair on it. And they would bring it right up to the bride. And there would be four men on each side. There were two poles. And then there was a chair. And four men at each end of the poles. And they would come right up to the bride. And they would set it down. And she would step between the poles. And she would sit down. And they would lift her up. And they would carry her off to the father's house. And they called it being flown to the father's house. Sound familiar? And here's the other thing. If you weren't ready, when everybody came back to the Father's house, the door was shut and you couldn't get in. What about Auntie Uncle? They were just late. No, can't get in. The question is, are you ready? There's only one way you're going to take part of the rapture, and that's to be born again. So you can be ready. Gosh, i got so much I want to say. I'm already late. It's all right. David doesn't need a sound practice for next service. Let, let me wrap this up with them. Um, look at Revel, go to Revelation chapter 1. No, no, don't go to 1. Go to 4. 
We'll come back to one. Um, in Revelation chapter 1, we see Jesus appearing to John, the apostle John, who was, they tried to murder him. They tried to martyr him. They tried to boil him in oil. They couldn't. And then he was banished to Patmos to die on this island. But through that tribulation, you know, you and me might go, Lord, this is what I get, serving you faithful all my life, and you, you, the guy tries to boil me in oil, now I'm banished to this desert island to die here, that's what I get for serving you? It was there that Jesus met him, right where he was at. And boy, what a blessing that must have been. The Lord himself appeared right in front of John. He fell down like a dead man because of the glory of the Lord. And God told him of the things that would happen and take place. In chapters 2 and 3, we see the church era. We see the seven letters to the seven churches that were written to real churches dealing with real problems. And every one of us can relate to every one of those churches. We might be like every one of those churches. We might be like a couple of those churches. You might be like all of them. But they, you know, in, within all those churches, there were people that were getting saved and there were those that were, that were going astray, except for two churches that nothing bad was spoken of, Smyrna and Philadelphia. Smyrna was the suffering church. Philadelphia was just this on-fire church for Jesus. And matter of fact, he said in Revelation 3.10, speaking of the church of Philadelphia, which we all like to think we're from, right? Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. What did that say? Jesus just told them, listen, if you're truly in me, if you're truly born again, if you're truly mine, you're not going to see the judgment poured out. That's what he just said. That's for every believer. That's not like just for super saints. It's like the trumpet doesn't blow and the super saints go, but the backslidden ones, they got to go through like a purgatory thing. No. You'll go, but you'll be ashamed. That's a blessed hope. But then check this out. The seven letters are also a church era. And it's, it's, it's called out the last 2,000 years, and we are in the last church era, the era of Laodicea, where the church is lukewarm, a large. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, look what it says. After these things, after what things? After the church era is completed. After these things, I look, behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a, what? Trumpet! Saying, come up here! And I will show you things which much, much, must take place after this. After what? After the church is brought up to heaven. Hello. That's good stuff. Flip over to chapter 5. We're in heaven. We're all celebrating. But then something kind of happens here. Check this out. Verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Who's that? The Father. A scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. What are those? That's the title earth to the, the, the title deed to the earth, and those are the seven seals that will be opened to start the tribulation. I saw sealed with seven seals this scroll. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven and no one on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loosen its seven seals. And I looked and 
behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures, and in the midst the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out to all the earth. Then he came, who? Jesus Christ, and took the scroll out of the right hand of him, who? The Father, who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, which was having the harp and golden bowls full of the incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. Check it out. Here's the song. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. And out of every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on earth. Why is that important? Because that shows us the church is in heaven. Us. He's redeemed us. He's made us kings and priests. The kings and priests are only spoken of three different people Jesus, Melchizedek, and the church. We're in heaven. The scroll's been handed to him, it hasn't been opened yet. Hello? Now, you might have a translation that instead of us, verse 9 and verse 10 says them. Anybody have that? Okay. Don't be afraid. It's us. See, because those that hold a post-tribulation view say that the word is them and not us, therefore the church isn't in heaven yet. And this is just kind of like announcing what's going to happen. And those who hold a post-tribulation or a mid-tribulation view say it's not us, it's them. All of those that hold a post-tribulation view and a mid-tribulation view all agree if the word was us, that the church would be in heaven. They all agree. The post-tribbers, the mid-tribbers, the three-quarters, and whatever else is out there, they all agree that if the word was us in chapter 5, the church would be in heaven, but they say it's them. And you might have, if yours says them, you might have a little caption at the side note that says the most authoritative scripture Manuscripts say them. The most ancient Greek manuscripts say them. The original manuscripts in Greek say them. You might have that little post-it note next to the verses 9 and 10 where it says them. You might have that. And, and the post-tribulationists will tell you this. They'll say, the book of Revelation has 95 ancient Greek manuscripts. And out of the 95, only 23 of them Say us. And they're right. But here's the problem with their thinking. Out of 95 Greek manuscripts, ancient Greek manuscripts is where we get the scriptures from. Out of 95 ancient Greek manuscripts on the book of Revelation, only 24 of them have chapter 5. And 23 of those Say us. Did you get that? Us. Let me give you the final proof and we'll wrap this up. Did I already say we'd wrap it up? Go to chapter 1, Revelation. Here's the final proof. 
Revelation 1, verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Us. Every single scholar who believes in either pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib all agree chapter 1 is talking about the church. Kings and priests, he made us. He calls that, the church he calls that, kings and priests. The word us there is the word in the Greek, hemos. I think I'm pronouncing it right. It's the same word that's used in chapter 5. Jesus. When he's telling his disciples all about the tribulation and the horrible things that are going to happen. When he's all done telling them the crazy stuff, he then says in Luke 21, 36, Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. How can you be counted worthy to escape the wrath of God that we poured out on a Christ-rejecting world over seven years? There's only one way. Give your life to Christ today. To be born again. We're not appointed to wrath. He's delivered us from the wrath to come. He's given us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's job is to get us to heaven. The rapture will take place. We'll be caught up in the clouds. We'll see our loved ones. We'll have a seven-year honeymoon. And then we're going to get on horses and ride back and watch him set up his kingdom. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> oh, man. I got so much more to say. But we're going to just do part two next week because it goes right into chapter five. So read ahead, okay? Father, thank you for this time. Oh, Lord, minister to our hearts. Put, a, put an excitement there, Lord God, to live for you. To realize that you could come today. What can we do today that would please you, Lord God? Oh, Lord, fill us afresh with the Holy Spirit. To know you more. To do more for you. To be available. To just bless people. And Lord, if there's someone here today or someone listening online, whatever, that, that, that they don't know Jesus, if that's you, would you just ask them into your heart right now? Just say, Jesus, I love you. Forgive me of my sins. Wash me clean. I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe you rose from the dead. You paid the price for my sins, Lord. You've set in a gift in front of me. I'm, I'm, I want to take that gift. I want to be born again. I want to be saved. Lord, save me now. If you just prayed that in your heart, you're a child of God. And you're going up when that trumpet sounds. And for the rest of us who already know him and know that we're going for you, God wants to use you in a mighty, powerful way. You just have to be available. Amen? God bless you guys. Have a great day.